Chapter 3. Did Jesus' followers think he was God? Paul never equates Jesus with God. Professor W. R. Matthews. If the account of Jesus' life is accurate, his mother's most carefully guarded secret must have been the matter of her son's deity. Townspeople who had enjoyed a lifetime acquaintanceship with Jesus and his family were astonished at his prowess and wisdom, but offended by the authority with which he taught. Their response to his teaching and miraculous powers was one of skepticism. They questioned, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James and Joseph, and Simon and Jude, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Matthew 13, verses 55 to 57. They evidently considered him to be a man like themselves, a member of the human family, composed of brothers and sisters, the son of a tradesman well known in the local community. His immediate family obviously never thought that Jesus had made a claim to be God. At one point, they invited him to leave his home area because he constituted a personal risk to their safety. John tells the story. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see the works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself tries to become known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. John 7 verses 1 to 5. Even when we allow for the fact that Jesus' family did not accept his claims, Nothing in the story leads us to think that they had rejected Jesus because he thought he was God. None of the Gospel reports suggest that the Messiah's family was privy to any information about him being God, information that would have put a chasm between them and him. Luke, presenting an account of the Christian faith to Theophilus, failed to make any point about the deity of Jesus. He calls him Son of God, but this is because of his virgin birth. Luke 1, verse 35. Son of God, not God the Son, was also a recognized messianic title. If Luke talked to the mother of Jesus to confirm the story of the virgin birth, either she failed to mention the matter of Christ's deity, or Luke considered it unimportant. Could it be that the idea of Jesus having pre-existed as part of the Godhead had never occurred to them? Had Mary thought of herself as mother of God? She certainly would have mentioned that fact. It's a very natural concept for one reared in a modern Christian environment to accept the idea of a two or three person God, though no one has been able to give a logical explanation of how three, who are each called God, can in fact be one God. It stands as part of our religious heritage. To believe otherwise is to run the risk of being stamped a dangerous heretic. To the first Christians, however, the idea of a second, pre-existent person in the Godhead was unthinkable. Raymond Brown, a Roman Catholic theologian and certainly no foe 
of the Trinitarian concept by training, makes the point that Matthew and Luke, quote, show no knowledge of Jesus' pre-existence. Seemingly for them, conception was the becoming or begetting of God's Son. That's a quotation from The Birth of the Messiah, written in 1977. If Jesus did not pre-exist, then there is no eternal Son. There is no evidence, therefore, that Matthew and Luke believed in the triune God. We must review the Trinitarian method of handling this problem. The widely acknowledged sparseness of hard evidence in Scripture for the Trinitarian or Binitarian concept. Trinitarian exponents such as Warfield are in agreement that, quote, the New Testament writers certainly were not conscious of being set as forth of strange gods. In their own estimation, they worshipped and proclaimed just the God of Israel, and they laid no stress than the Old Testament itself upon his unity. But further remarks by Warfield prove puzzling. The simplicity and assurance with which the New Testament writers speak of God as a trinity have, however, a further implication. If they betray no sense of novelty in so speaking of him, this is undoubtedly in part because it's no longer a novelty so to speak of him. It's clear, in other words, that as we read the New Testament, we are not witnessing the birth of a new concept of God. What we meet with is a firmly established concept of God. The doctrine of the Trinity does not appear in the New Testament in the making, but as already made. That's from the article Trinity in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia written in 1983. According to Warfield, the Trinitarian position is this. One, we believe in a three-person God. Two, the doctrine is not developed in the New Testament. Number three, it must already have been an established doctrine by the time the New Testament was written and no longer considered a point of discussion because of its wide acceptance. Even though it's never mentioned by name, the writers wrote with, quote, simplicity and assurance about this unnamed, unexplained doctrine. Warfield was apparently encouraged by the thought that in the Hebrew Bible, quote, there are certain repetitions of the name of God which seem to distinguish between God and God. One such example he found in Psalm 110, verse 1. But he apparently had not examined the Hebrew text, which, as we have seen, carefully distinguishes between God and the Messiah, my Lord Adoni, who is not God. In view of the words of Jesus' disciples, his family and acquaintances, the whole premise of Warfield's argument is untenable. Those who knew Jesus intimately certainly regarded him as a man who could not be compared with any other human person, but they did not think he was the God of Israel. How is it that Luke, for example, says not a word about what had to be the most revolutionary religious concept ever to be entertained by the Jewish Christian community? The idea that at some point in his career a man was suddenly discovered to be the God-man of the Trinity would have been cause for widespread discussion. To omit the record of this extraordinary event 
would have been akin to the history books of the United States failing to make mention of the Founding Fathers or the Civil War, or British historians ignoring World Wars I and II and Winston Churchill. The idea is inconceivable. The novel idea that Jesus was God would have caused a major doctrinal upheaval deserving the most comprehensive attention. It could not have crept silently into the minds of the monotheistic Jewish apostolic community. A new concept about the deity would certainly have provoked furious controversy. Peter's Confession of Faith Peter was given a magnificent opportunity to express himself on the subject of Jesus' identity when he was specifically asked by Jesus, quote, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus' response to this celebrated confession of faith is a key to the understanding of the whole New Testament. Jesus applauded Peter's inspired insight by replying, quote, Blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a quotation from Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17. Peter's definition of Jesus' identity is simple and clear. It's a definition repeatedly underlined throughout the New Testament. It is also the refreshingly uncomplicated statement of a disciple of Jesus, unaware of any of the complexities of Trinitarianism. Unfortunately, the central Christian confession has been seriously misunderstood, with complete disregard for the biblical meaning of the term Son of God, it has been contended that Peter meant to say that Jesus was, quote, very God. It should be recognized that the addition of the term Son of the living God to the title Messiah in Matthew 16, 16, in no way alters the fact that Jesus was a fully human person. The parallel passages in Luke and Mark, Luke 9, 20 and Mark 8, verse 29, record Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Christ of God and simply the Christ, respectively. These writers did not feel the need to amplify the title further. This proves that Matthew's added phrase, quote, Son of the living God, does not dramatically affect the identity of Jesus. Son of God is virtually a synonym for Messiah based on Psalm 2, verses 2, 6, and 7. Messiah, anointed one, is equal to king, and this is equal to son of God. Both titles, Messiah and son of God, point to the expected son of David, king of Israel. Son of God is the equivalent in the New Testament of king of Israel, John 1, verse 49. Solomon was also son of God, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, as was collectively the whole nation of Israel, Exodus 4, verse 22. Highly significant also is Hosea 1, verse 10, where Israel at its future restoration will be worthy of the same title given by Peter to Jesus, 
sons of the living God. As a nation, the Jews were anxiously awaiting the promised Messiah. The factor in Jesus' Messiahship, which caused offense, was Jesus' insistence that he must suffer death rather than throw off the Roman yoke. It would be only through resurrection and his eventual return to the earth at the second coming that the promised kingdom of glory would be established. It is true that Peter was slow to grasp that the Messiah had first to suffer death. Nevertheless, he was warmly commended by Jesus because he had understood that his master was indeed the messianic son of God. Peter had been privileged to hear the message which Jesus gave to Israel. He had witnessed his healing miracles. He had been in attendance when Jesus had confounded the religious leaders by his superior wisdom. He had seen authority exercised over demons and the dead resurrected. He could consult the Old Testament and observe how Jesus had exactly fulfilled the many prophecies concerning the predicted Savior of the nation. What God revealed to Peter was based on hard, verifiable evidence, and confession of Jesus as Messiah was to be for all time the foundation of the church's faith. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 18. Without the benefit of previous indoctrination that Jesus was an eternally pre-existent being, and therefore God, a reader of the New Testament would gather that the expected Messiah was a real human person, a descendant of Abraham and David, supernaturally begotten, Matthew 1.20. Like us, he came into the world a helpless infant. He grew in knowledge and wisdom, experienced all the common weaknesses of humanity, hunger, thirst, and weariness. He had the same deep emotions as any person, expressed anger, compassion, and fear of death, had a will of his own, and prayed that he might escape the cruel death he knew he faced. He died the death of a mortal man, and before his death, as a loving and compassionate son, provided for the continued welfare of his mother. After his death, Jesus' followers reacted initially as though he were a man who had failed in his task of bringing about the restoration of Israel, as other so-called messiahs before him had also failed. Luke 24, verse 21. Were our minds not clouded by centuries of indoctrination and an unfortunate misunderstanding about the meaning of the title Son of God, in the Jewish environment of that time, we would have little difficulty understanding, as Peter did, that Jesus was the Messiah, not God. Was Israel really supposed to be taken by surprise by the arrival of God himself? What was the Messiah to be according to the expectations of the prophets of Israel? A man, God-man, higher order of angel, what were Peter and the rest of Israel looking for? History shows that a number of men had posed as the saviour of Israel and gained a following 
among the Jewish community. The nation correctly expected the liberator to come from the kingly line of David. They anticipated a man who would ascend the restored throne of David, vested with power to extend his rule to encompass all nations. This is what all of the prophets had foreseen. Thus the last question the disciples asked Jesus before his final departure was, quote, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. They had every reason to believe that Jesus as Messiah would now bring about the promised restoration. Jesus' answer was merely, quote, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Acts 1 verse 7. Jesus did not question the fact that the kingdom would indeed one day be restored to Israel. The time of that great event was not to be revealed. That the Messiah would restore the kingdom was the common thinking of Jesus and his disciples. It was, after all, what all the prophets had constantly predicted. The disciples expected the Messiah to be born from the seed of David. As it would have appeared to any monotheistic Jew, the term Son of God carried the royal meaning it had acquired in the Old Testament. It designated a human being, a king especially related to God and invested with his spirit. That it implied the deity of Jesus in a Trinitarian sense would have been the most astounding revolutionary information ever to invade the mind of Peter or any other religious Jew. Nowhere among the recorded words of the early apostles, with the possible exception of Thomas, is there even the slightest indication that they were dealing with a God-man. Did Judas know he was betraying his Creator and God? And on the occasions when the disciples deserted Jesus, were they aware that they were leaving God? Did they believe God was washing their feet at the Last Supper? When Peter took out his sword to cut off a soldier's ear, did he think that the God who had created him was somehow incapable of protecting himself? At the Mount of Transfiguration, after the disciples saw a vision of Jesus in a future glorified state, along with Moses and Elijah, they wanted to build three tabernacles, one for each of these three men. Matthew 17, verse 4. I note that the event, the Transfiguration, was a preview of the future kingdom of God, and supplied the necessary encouragement for the disciples following the announcement of Jesus' death, Matthew 16, 21. See also 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18 for the link between the second coming and kingdom and the transfiguration. The preview of the return of Christ in glory provided a glimpse in vision of Elijah and Moses who would then be restored to life by resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. Luke 9, verses 27 to 28, expressly links Jesus' saying about the kingdom to the event which happened 
eight days later. Why was no distinction made between these three men if one of them were God? The human Messiah had appeared in Galilee as bearer of the one God's message and gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4 verse 43, Mark 1 verses 14 and 15, and so on. The gospel of the kingdom contained such a realistic and vivid expectation of future glory that a rivalry arose among disciples as to who would be the greatest in that coming kingdom. The message of the kingdom had to do with the land promised to Abraham, promises not yet fulfilled. It concerned the re-establishment of the throne of David and the permanent restoration and expansion of the fortunes of the nation of Israel. Information about that kingdom will be found in Acts 1, 6. Compare that with Matthew 5, verse 5. Acts 3, verse 21. Romans 4, verse 13. And Hebrews 11, verse 8. The prophets of Israel were concerned with Israel's future existence as a witness to the one God within a new society organized under a theocracy. Heaven, as a reward for disembodied souls, was completely outside the disciples' thinking. What they looked forward to was inheritance of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, Matthew 20, verse 21, and compare with that Revelation 5, verse 10. They were looking forward also to future rulership with the Messiah in a world restored to paradise, as all the prophets had foreseen. You'll find that information in Matthew 19, 28, Romans 5, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 3, verse 21, Revelation 5, verse 10, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, Isaiah 32, verse 1, and particularly Daniel chapter 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. The restoration of the world from the chaos of Satan's rule was their dream. They finally gave their lives to advance that message, but they did not live to see the fulfillment of their hopes. This Jesus looked like the one who could make real the prophet's aspirations. He was empowered to raise the dead, to feed multitudes from virtually nothing, and to escape unharmed the attempts of the authorities to kill him. He confounded critics by his wisdom. Since the time was ripe for the Messiah to arrive on the scene, it appeared that Jesus would give substance to the nation's age-long dreams. No wonder others wanted to make him king immediately. John 6 verse 15. How appropriate for the Messiah that they could scatter palm leaves in his path, giving him a reception due to royalty. Yet he refused the offer, and shortly afterwards the excited hopes of the followers lay shattered. Behind the stone door of a guarded tomb 
lay the lifeless body of their Messiah. One man never quite seemed to give up. I quote, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan of action. A man from Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's in Luke 23, verses 50 to 52. Where were his closest associates shortly after his death? When crucifixion seemed to end all hope of Israel's restoration and their own promotion to royal position in the Messiah's kingdom, Peter and a number of them returned to their business venture. One would have thought that human curiosity at least would have caused them to join the women at the tomb to see what was going to happen to their dead so-called God. Their reaction, however, tells us that they viewed the death of Jesus as that of an, an extraordinary human being ending the story of another fallen hero messiah. They seem temporarily to lose sight of their answer to his question, who do you say that I am? An earlier question, who do men say that the Son of Man is, revealed a sharp division among those outside his immediate circle. Some said he was, quote, John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Matthew 16, verse 14. The variety of answers is not unlike the conflicting opinions current today. Some say he never existed. Others that he was a great moral teacher, a mere mortal like us, but given superhuman rank through the virgin birth story as part of early Christian mythological embroidery. Some say he was God, pre-existing, who became a God-man and then returned to his former position as God through a resurrection. Some have written books to prove his resurrection was a plot faked by his followers, designed to promote a new religion. Others advance the idea that he was a superior, pre-existing, or pre-human angel. The very term pre-human suggests that such a Jesus was not really human. If his origin was an angel, that is what, at the core of his being, he really would be. Some advance the idea that Jesus was the first of God's creation. Most claim some Bible authority for these widely divergent views. Some contend that it's irrelevant what we believe if we follow his moral and social precepts. This might appear a reasonable approach, but a number of important biblical considerations are against it. Jesus defined the whole point of the Christian faith with the words, quote, This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. Obviously, proper identification of God and the Messiah has everything to do with eternal life. If these were matters of minor importance, why did Jesus ask his central question about his own identity 
and so powerfully commend Peter for his insight that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 19. The Apostle Paul evidences a great deal of anxiety when he warns the church at Corinth about a deception involving the acceptance of, quote, another Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. There's also the crucial statement about Jesus in 1 John 4, verse 2. I quote, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, that's to say as a real human being, is from God. This too makes the matter of proper identification critically important. It's only from the words of the Savior and his followers that we can determine which is the correct identification of Jesus among all the competing ideas. We know how the disciples viewed their master during his lifetime, and we have briefly traced their reactions immediately after his death. But what of the resurrected Jesus? If these men were trying to enhance this new religion by faking a resurrection, as some allege, they might also have claimed deity for him, as was the common honor given heroes and rulers of that age. The idea was far from unique. The Book of Acts reports that when King Herod took his throne and spoke, the people shouted, The voice of God and not of a man. He would have been better served by a less enthusiastic greeting. The result of his refusal to reject the flattery was death. His body was eaten by worms. Acts 12, verse 21 to 23. Roman emperors were deified and worshipped as gods. The Apostle Paul avoided King Herod's fate by rejecting the multitude when they claimed for Paul that, quote, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Acts 14, verse 11. Paul was quick to put considerable distance between himself and any such idea. Not only is there no evidence that Jesus was held to be God during his lifetime by his closest followers, but the resurrection itself did nothing to change the disciples' perception of Jesus as a man. They did not now think that Jesus was really God. They simply believed that God had resurrected a human being. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gave what is considered by Christianity to be a critically important statement about the faith. I quote, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross and put to death. That's Acts 2, verse 22 and 23. What a marvelous opportunity to attest to the death of a second person in the Godhead to emphasize the enormity of the crime of deicide. Peter continues, and so, because he, that's to say David, was a prophet 
and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Acts 2 verse 30 and 31. Peter reflects the teaching of his master from Jesus' birth to his death and after his resurrection it is impossible to find any definite biblical statement which disturbs the strict unitary non-trinitarian monotheism of Jesus and his chief disciples Jewish and Christian belief. Luke the physician was a careful historian and shrewd observer. He was an ardent disciple and evangelist of apostolic Christianity. As he explained in the introduction to his first volume, he deliberately set out to investigate and document the Christian faith as he knew it by consulting first-hand witnesses who had known Jesus. Luke 1 verses 1 to 4. In his second volume, the book of Acts, Luke implies that he had spent much time in the company of Paul as they traveled together. It would be quite extraordinary if Paul and Luke were divided over the issue of the origin of Jesus. In his account of the miracle of Jesus' birth through virginal conception, he makes no mention whatever of Jesus having previously existed. His record describes the miraculous conception of a human person who comes into being in the womb of his mother. Luke wrote two whole volumes of the Bible, contributing more of the New Testament than any other writer, without so much as a hint of belief in a pre-existent second member of a trinity. When the angel Gabriel announced the arrival of the long-promised Messiah to Mary, he informed her that she would, quote, bear a son and name him Jesus. He will be great, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Luke 1, verses 31-32. Gabriel spoke of a future great to be gained through divine appointment to the throne of Jesus' celebrated ancestor, David. There was no indication from the angel that Mary was to carry in her body one who had pre-existed as God or a superior angel. The good news was that she was to conceive and bear a son who would thus be the son of God as well as the son of David. The faith of Luke and of the Christian community for which he wrote could hardly be more clearly defined. Luke recorded the fact that Mary's son was to be conceived in a miraculous way by a special divine intervention. I quote, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. There's no word here of an eternal sonship, simply the promise that her offspring would be called Son of God because of the miracle 
which God would perform in her, a miracle which would involve the one God directly in the birth of a unique human being, Israel's promised Messiah. We are presented in these verses on the authority of God's emissary with a plain statement about the origin of Jesus as Son of God. The miraculous conception in Mary, according to Luke, was the immediate cause of the divine sonship of Jesus. It is for that reason that Jesus was to be called the Son of God. A French commentator on this passage nicely renders the Greek vioke as, and the French is, c'est précisément pourquoi. That is precisely why. For that reason, indeed, he shall be called the Son of God. That's a quotation from Professor Lyonnais in an article entitled L'Annonciation et la Mariologie Biblique in Maria in Sacra Scriptura, written in 1965. Luke presents us with a Jesus who is fully human, supernaturally conceived, and thus worthy to be called the Son of God. It is not difficult to see that Luke's view of Jesus' sonship is at variance with the traditional idea that one who already existed as God and Son of God had entered the womb of Mary. If this were so, the conception of Jesus would not be the cause of Jesus' divine sonship. He would have been the Son of God already. Alfred Plummer makes an honest appraisal of Luke's account of Jesus' beginning. The title, Son of the Most High, Luke 1.32, expresses some close relationship between Jesus and Jehovah, but not the divine sonship of the Trinity. That's from the Gospel according to St. Luke in the International Critical Commentary. The author calls our attention to the fact that Christians are also called sons of the Most High, Luke 6, verse 35. But this does not make them eternally pre-existent beings. It's only under the influence of doctrinaire Trinitarian thinking and a distortion of the Hebrew usage of the title, quote, Son of God, that many read into Luke's account a, quote, God the Son, who is entirely unknown to Luke. Another candid admission that Luke did not think of Jesus pre-existing his birth comes from a leading Roman Catholic scholar, Raymond Brown. He emphasizes the fact that Matthew and Luke, and I quote, show no knowledge of pre-existence. Seemingly for them, the conception was the becoming or begetting of God's Son. That's from Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah. Brown points out that the traditional concept of pre-existence means that the conception of Jesus was the breaking off of an existence as God and the beginning of an earthly career, but not the begetting of God's Son. Yet for Luke, Jesus begins to exist in the womb of Mary. Conception is causally related to divine worship. 
That again is a quotation from Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah. Jesus was begotten as Son of God at his conception. Luke did not think that Jesus had a pre-human life. Luke, therefore, could not have been a believer in the triune God. I note that in the absence of any mention of the pre-existence of Jesus in Luke or Acts, it would be unwise to find a reference to an antenatal existence in Luke 10, verse 18. Jesus may well be speaking here of Satan's descent to counterattack in view of Jesus' exorcisms, or alternatively, Jesus sees in the vision Satan's eschatological fall, knowing that he has only a short time, Revelation 12, verse 12, or Satan's final defeat when the kingdom comes. Referring to the word therefore in Luke 1.35, Brown says that, quote, it involves a certain causality. Jesus' sonship is derived from the miraculous conception. This, he says, quote, is an embarrassment to many orthodox theologians because in traditional incarnational theology, a conception by the Holy Spirit does not bring about the existence of God's Son. Brown then makes reference to theologians who, quote, try to avoid the causal connection, therefore, in Luke 1.35, by arguing that the conception of the child does not bring the Son of God into being. Brown finds himself unable to agree with them. What Brown has disclosed is simply the reluctance of the average Bible student to admit that Scripture, in this critical matter of the origin and nature of Jesus, does not agree with what he or she has accepted as truth without careful examination. If the conclusions of the Nicene and later Chalcedonian councils were complex and confusing, the account of Luke is quite the opposite. According to him, Jesus was a human person deriving existence and personality from his mother Mary, herself a descendant of David. If he were not a fully human person, how could he be the promised Messiah, the seed or descendant of Abraham and David? How could a person who has existed from eternity be a descendant of David in any meaningful sense. Trinitarian views of Jesus seem to eliminate his descent from David and thus his claim to be the Messiah. With the concept of a second person in the Godhead, a pre-existent divine being becoming a helpless fetus in the womb of his mother, Mary in this case, while all the time retaining his Godhead, would that have made any sense to Luke? If some special God-given revelation had been granted to anyone, Paul, Peter, or Mary, with whom Luke must have checked thoroughly before composing his story of the foundations of the original faith, would he not have made some slight mention of this momentous event? 
we must remember that Trinitarian teaching officially maintains that Jesus possessed impersonal human nature, the doctrine technically known as anhypostasia, but that Jesus, so the tradition says, was not a human person. That denial stems logically from the mistaken premise that Jesus is God, an eternal member of the triune Godhead. The argument is this. If the ego of Jesus, the single center of his personality, is God, it must follow that the human element in him cannot be another ego or self. Thus it must be said that his humanity is really impersonal human nature. To say that Jesus had a second human ego would make him two persons. All of this extraordinary complexity is unknown to any writer of Scripture. It is significant that Gabriel, Luke, and Matthew, dealing with the origin of Jesus, take no notice at all of the supposed eternal pre-existence of the Son of God who became man, and they are unaware of any complexities about the humanity of the Savior. Judged by today's religious standards and the opinions of many theologians, Gabriel, Luke, and Matthew were most unorthodox and might even be accused of being non-Christian. A special emphasis is placed on the humanity of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is clearly very much part of the human race. I quote Hebrews 2 verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in all things. His brothers, of course, were all human beings. Hebrews 7 verse 14, For it's evident that our Lord was a descendant of Judah. As the son of David, he was part of the human race, therefore. Hebrews 5 verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. That means, of course, he suffered like any other human person. God, of course, does not learn obedience. Hebrews 2 verse 18, He himself was tempted in that which he suffered. And you remember that God cannot be tempted, as we read in James 1 verse 13. Hebrews 5 verse 7, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And I remind you that if he were God, he would have been able to save himself. Hebrews 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are. And of course, God cannot be tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 4, God, not Jesus, rested at creation. That's to say, God was the creator in Genesis. Hebrews 2 verse 12, Jesus joins Christians in the worship of God. Dr. James Dunn acknowledges that the book of Hebrews has often been thought to support the pre-existence of Christ. I quote, the special contribution of Hebrews is that it seems to be the first of the New Testament writings 
to have embraced the specific thought of a pre-existent divine sonship. But now note the conclusion of Dr. James Dunn. It would certainly go beyond our evidence to conclude that the author has attained to the understanding of God's Son as having had a real personal pre-existence. In short, a concept of pre-existent sonship, yes, but the pre-existence perhaps more of an idea and a purpose in the mind of God rather than a personal divine being. That's a quotation from Dr. James Dunn's Christology in the Making, written in 1980. When the book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus, in Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8, it refers to the classic passage in the Psalms having to do with the destiny of man. I quote, What is man that you remember him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God, or the angels possibly, and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That's a quotation from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. Could this passage, speaking originally of mankind, be applied to Jesus if he was in fact God? How could he be, quote, lower than God or the angels, and at the same time, even as a man, be fully God? The book of Hebrews has been used to support an eternal past pre-existence for the Messiah. Such so-called proofs rely heavily on inference drawn from single verses. For example, quote, God, in these last days, has spoken to us in a Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, or the ages. That's a quotation from Hebrews 1, verse 2. It has been supposed by some that this verse is evidence that Jesus created the world. The verse is more properly translated, quote, through, not by, through whom also God made the ages. There's nothing here which implies that Jesus created the heaven and earth. What he said is that the one God, who on his own testimony, as we've seen, was unaccompanied in the act of creation, Isaiah 44:24 established the ages of human history with Jesus at the center of his purpose. Prior to speaking through the Son, only, quote, in these last days. It's not difficult to conceive that the Messiah's life, death, and rulership of the world would impact all ages, past, present, and future, the same picture of Jesus as the cosmic center of God's design for the world is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. In Hebrews, it is highly significant that God did not speak through a son in Old Testament times, but only, quote, at the end of those days, Hebrews 1, verse 2. 
There is a strong suggestion here that the sun is not eternal, but comes into existence as the historical Jesus. What emerges from the first two verses of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus was not God's agent to Israel in Old Testament times. God spoke through persons other than Jesus in the past. Angels were often agents of God. This does not mean that the angel of the Lord who represented the God of Israel was the pre-existent so-called Son of God, as sometimes claimed. Quite specifically, our author argues God did not address any angel as son, according to Hebrews 1 verse 5. That privilege was reserved for God's unique son, Jesus. This fact should lay to rest any theory that Jesus pre-existed as an angel. The notion that he could have been Michael, the archangel, is positively excluded by the first chapter of Hebrews. The ministry of the Son of God is far superior to that of angels, though they had been instrumental in the giving of the law at Sinai. Galatians 3 verse 19. The writer of Hebrews calls our attention to a different period of time when he says, For he did not subject to angels the inhabited earth to come concerning which we are speaking. Hebrews 2 verse 5. The writer has in mind not past events, but a new era coming. The preeminence of the Messiah as head of this new creation of the future is a pervasive New Testament teaching. In fact, it's the substance of the gospel of the kingdom. The author of Hebrews underlines the fact that Jesus came into an inheritance superior to that of the angel. His was the rightful inheritance of a firstborn son. I quote again, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Hebrews 1 verse 5. Jesus could not have been God. He was a being created by the Father, begetting or fathering or procreating implies beginning, and God has no beginning. Jesus was the firstborn of God's new creation. His origin was unique, involving a miraculous conception in Mary, according to Luke 1, verse 35. But he was neither God nor literally pre-existent, nor was he the Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. Melchizedek was not the Son of God, but like him, as Hebrews 7, verse 3 says. Melchizedek did in fact have a genealogy, though it is not recorded in the Scripture. The mysterious priest of whose lineage there is no scriptural record was not the supreme God. God, anyway, in the Hebrew Bible, is, quote, not a man. Translations are correct when they designate Melchizedek as, quote, this man, Hebrews 7, verse 4. 
He's also the person, quote, whose genealogy is not traced from the Levites, Hebrews 7, verse 6. But the point is that it is traceable to someone. We read of whose genealogy, referring to Melchizedek's, and that implies that he had one, as everyone else does. Admittedly, all this sort of argumentation based on the absence of the recorded ancestry of a priest-king is very remote to us in the 20th century. This is all the more reason why the Bible should be studied in the light of its own context and often with the help of those whose business it is to be informed about its background. I note that modern commentary is particularly helpful on the Jewish background of the language of Hebrews 7 in regard to Melchizedek. The mentality of those who say, quote, I just study the Bible, not commentaries, may turn out to be a passport to disaster and ignorance. What the writer to the Hebrews and Paul tried to make clear was the preeminence of Jesus as, quote, firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's Colossians 1, verse 18. The firstborn son, by Jewish law, received the greatest inheritance. The book of Hebrews describes the elevated position of the son, and when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1, verse 6. New Testament writers found it necessary to underline the magnitude of Jesus' office as Messiah. Why did the author not state plainly that Jesus was the one God? This would have established his superiority over the angels, over Moses and Joshua, beyond any doubt, since the author knew with Peter and the apostles that Jesus was the Messiah, Matthew 16, verse 16, he had to demonstrate from Scripture his superiority over all other created authorities. Note also that it was God, not Jesus, Messiah, who rested at creation, Hebrews 4, verse 4. This makes little sense if the Son had performed the work of the Genesis creation, a fact which he denied in Mark 10, verse 6. In the light of Isaiah 44, verse 24, Jesus could hardly have thought of himself as present with God in Genesis 1. Without question, the humanity of Jesus as high priest was another special point to be emphasized in the book of Hebrews. Confusion has arisen, however, over verse 8 of the first chapter. Quote, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Raymond Brown presents the following observations. I quote, Vincent Taylor admits that in verse 8, the expression, O God, is vocative, spoken of Jesus. But he says that the author of Hebrews was merely citing the psalm and using its terminology without any deliberate intention of suggesting that Jesus is God. It is true that the main point 
of citing the psalm was to contrast the sun with angels and to show that the sun enjoys eternal domination while the angels were but servants. Therefore, in the citation, no major point was being made of the fact that the sun can, very rarely, be addressed as God, I would say with a lowercase g. Yet we cannot presume that the author did not notice that his citation had this effect. We can say at least that the author saw nothing wrong in this address, and we can call upon a similar situation in Hebrews 1.10, where the application to the Son of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, has the effect of addressing Jesus as Lord. Of course, we have no way of knowing what the O God of the psalm meant to the author of Hebrews when he applies it to Jesus. Psalm 45 is a royal psalm, and on the analogy of the, quote, mighty God of Isaiah 9, verse 6, God may have been looked on simply as a royal title and hence applicable to Jesus as the Davidic Messiah. That's a quotation from Raymond Brown's Jesus, God, and Man, written in 1967. Raymond Brown rightly senses the strong messianic atmosphere of Hebrews 1. The, quote, mighty God of Isaiah 9, verse 6, does indeed mean, as defined by the Hebrew lexicon, quote, divine hero reflecting the divine majesty. That's from the Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs. And we compare with that the plural of the word God, Elim, plural of the word El, gods, that's lowercase g-o-d-s, used of persons other than the one God. At Qumran, angels are called Elim, gods, including Michael. The New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis comments, quote, the openness to using divine names for principal angels has obvious implications for New Testament Christology. It is precisely that same messianic sense of the term God which allows the psalmist in Psalm 45 to address the king as, quote, God, without inviting us to think that there are now two members of the Godhead. The quotation of Psalm 45, verse 6, in Hebrews 1, verse 8, brings that same messianic use of the word God into the New Testament. We should not misunderstand this very Jewish use of titles. It's a serious mistake to think that the Messiah has now stepped into the space reserved for the one God, the Father. However exalted the position of Jesus, and despite his function as God's supreme representative, the strict unipersonal monotheism of Israel's faith is never compromised by any New Testament writer. The writer to the Hebrews joins the rest of the New Testament in proclaiming Jesus as God's royal Messiah. The promise of the man-Messiah's coming kingdom is, of course, found very frequently in Scripture. 
Paul told the Gentile world, in the clearest of terms, that God, quote, has fixed a day in which he will judge or administer or rule the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's a quotation from Acts 17, verse 31, quoting Psalm 96, verse 13, where the psalmist states that God is coming to, quote, rule the world in righteousness, an occasion for the greatest rejoicing. This is Paul's proclamation of the coming kingdom to the Athenians. The man Jesus lived and died on this earth, and by his obedience qualified to be the first righteous world ruler. Through his resurrection and the power now conferred on him by his father, he will return at the appointed time to sit on the throne of his father David, ruling and judging and administering the earth. He remains, however, even in his resurrected state, quote, the man, Messiah Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, a testimony to the wonderful thing God has done through and for man. One would do a grave injustice to the writer of Hebrews to insist that he was trying to present a pre-existent God-man, so-called, in the first chapter of his epistle. The often repeated notion that unless Jesus is God, we have no Savior, has absolutely no scriptural backing. On the contrary, the Bible attests to the astonishing plan God is executing through a chosen human being. We must understand that the source of all Christian hope is found in this man, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. If Jesus were not a member of the human family as we are, then we have no assurance that human beings can be resurrected to eternal life, or rather the life of the age to come. Jesus' resurrection proved to the church that the man, Messiah, was indeed worthy of the exalted titles ascribed to the Messiah in the Old Testament. His resurrection was the hope that motivated the early church. If it had happened to one man, then it could happen to them. The earliest followers of Jesus seem to make a special point of emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. This is particularly true of the letter to the Hebrews. Quote, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters, I would say, in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. It is fair to ask, how could he be tempted as we are, share in flesh and blood, and be made like his brothers in all things, unless he was as completely mortal 
and human as we. A being who is God, encased in human flesh, or one who is fully God and man, is not a genuine human being. The Roman Catholic writer Thomas Hart candidly faces the problem posed by the later doctrine of the Trinity when he observes that, and I quote, the Chalcedonian formula, that was the council's decision declaring Jesus to be both God and man, that formula makes genuine humanity impossible. The conciliar definition says that Jesus is true man. But if there are two natures in him, it is clear which will dominate. And Jesus becomes immediately very different from us. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He knows the past, present, and future. He knows exactly what everyone is thinking and going to do. But this is far from ordinary human experience. Jesus, according to this Chalcedonian theory, is far from an ordinary human being. Jesus is tempted, but he cannot sin because he's God. What kind of temptation is this? It has little in common with the kinds of struggles we are familiar with. That's from Thomas Hart's book, To Know and Follow Jesus, written in 1984. As high priest, or, quote, that prophet, and the descendant of Abraham and David, Jesus does not transcend the boundaries of humanity, even though he is uniquely the Son of God. Paul contrasts Jesus with the first human being, Adam, to establish Jesus' position as the Messiah. To the Corinthians he wrote, quote, Since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-imparting spirit. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21, 45, and 47. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground. Jesus originated from the power of God's Spirit, active in Mary, and he will reappear at his future second coming as the life-giving being he became at his resurrection. There's no evidence that any of the apostles was the innovator of a new view of Jesus as God. Paul knows only of a Messiah who is a man, the final Adam. He makes a categorical distinction between him and his father in his first letter to Timothy. In a classic statement about the Christian creed, Paul says, and I quote, For there is one God and one mediator also between that God and man, the man, Messiah Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. This is a fine summary of Christian belief. 
as if to thwart any possible confusion between God and man, Paul contrasts the one God with the man, Messiah. Not only this, he makes belief in the one God and the man, Messiah, the basis of the knowledge of the truth, which leads to salvation. 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul's linking of salvation, the knowledge of truth, and a proper understanding of the identity of God and Jesus should on no count be missed. After the resurrection, Peter likewise knows of no Messiah other than the, quote, man Jesus. He introduces the Savior to his fellow countrymen with the words, and I quote, Men of Israel, listen to me. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. That's a quotation from Acts 2, verse 22. Luke quotes Paul's statement to the Greeks that, quote, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. That's Acts 17, verse 31. Both Peter and Paul described a resurrected person, the man Messiah, who is destined to return to judge and rule. Jesus was still defined as a man. It is part of God's infinite wisdom that he commits all judgment to a man who has experienced life in common with mankind. The New Testament is filled with plain statements about a human Jesus who had to be tested in all points, even as we are. So we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, Someone who was fully God and fully man cannot be totally human. This is the root of the Trinitarian problem. It is a sheer impossibility, in biblical terms, to confuse the one God with a human being. However much God may give his spirit to frail man, and however exalted the resurrected Jesus has become, Man, from the biblical point of view, is dust animated by spirit and not body and separable immortal soul, which is a Greek idea. I note that D.R.G. Owen, an article entitled Body and Soul in the New Testament, in Hebrew thought, as we have seen, the word translated soul regularly stands simply for the personal pronoun and means the self. And the phrase body and soul stands for the Hebrew idea that man is an animated body and not for the Greek view that he is an incarnated soul. Human being, by definition, denotes mortality, subjection to frailty and death. I quote, it is appointed to man once to die. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Jesus suffered the ultimate fate of all mankind, not that he needed to die, since he committed no sin. Nevertheless, bearing the penalty of mankind's sins, he died. God cannot die. 
we must emphasize the point. A Savior who is God cannot die and therefore did not die for our sins. The fact that Jesus died for our sins is proof in itself that he was not God. It is obvious sophistry to maintain that the immortal God died. Those who argue that only the body of Jesus died still fall into the trap of saying that Jesus himself did not die. All such arguments based on dualism are anyway quite unbiblical. The major point for the coherence of the whole faith is that Jesus himself died and therefore cannot have been God. Jesus' entire life was lived under the limitations of a human being. He became angry and tired. Mark 3 verse 5, John 4 verse 6. Though he never sinned, he had to learn obedience by what he suffered. Hebrews 5 verse 8. He could not retreat into a divine mental capsule to escape the rigors and battles of daily life. By his own admission, he did not possess all knowledge. He did not know the day of his future return. Mark 13, verse 32. As a child, he needed to grow in wisdom. Luke 2, verse 52. He had to ask his disciples on one occasion, Who touched me? Mark 5, verse 30. He wept. John 11, verse 35 and new discouragement. He evidently did not possess the qualities of omniscience. As we read in Mark 13, verse 32, he did not have the quality of omnipresence. John 11, verse 32, and Jesus, of course, did not have innate immortality. And these qualities of omniscience, omnipresence, and immortality are the indispensable characteristics of deity. First century Jews and Christians were looking for a human Messiah to rule a new world order on earth from the promised land. The decision by fourth and fifth century theologians that this unique human person called Jesus was, quote, very God of very God, would have been utterly shocking to the first century Christian community, which had a clear idea about the Messiah's lineage. I quote, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Hebrews 7 verse 14. Matthew records the expectations of the Jewish nation and the threat they posed to Gentile rulership as we read in Matthew 2, verses 2 to 6. The Gentile ruler, Herod, was deeply concerned to hear of the Eastern Magi's search for the one who was to be born king of the Jews. Any new dynasty would challenge his authority. Herod made inquiry of the chief priests and scribes as to where this Messiah was to be born. Matthew records their reply, quote, in Bethlehem of Judah. 
and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. That's a quotation from Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. All this was common knowledge, a biased translation in the King James Version about the Messiah's, quote, everlasting origins in Micah 5, verse 2, quoted in Matthew 2, verse 6, should not mislead us. The promise of the Messiah could be traced to, quote, the distant past. For that translation, see the NEB, New English Bible, and the New International Commentary on Micah 5, verse 2. The same Hebrew expression is found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, from days of Olam, Imot Olam, which appears in Micah 7, verse 14, Amos 9, verse 11, and Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 11. The Hastings Bible Dictionary translates the expression in Micah 5, verse 2 as remote antiquity, adding that, quote, days of eternity wrongly suggests the eternal pre-existence of the Messiah. See also the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges. I quote, more obvious and perfectly suitable to the context, origins here refers to his descent from the ancient Davidic family. Compare with that Amos 9 verse 11, where the, quote, days of old evidently refers to the reign of David. It was from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would rise to inherit the throne of his father David, his ancestor David. Jews were looking for a human deliverer, supernaturally endowed with divine wisdom and power. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. But certainly not for God to become man. Of this latter idea, the Old Testament had nothing to say. The resurrection of an eternal person undermines the marvel of what God has done in and through a human being and for the whole human race. The fact that God has dealt so wonderfully with human beings by providing a human being to blaze the trail to salvation puts immortality within the reach of every person. Christians today trust often in the false hope of a vague reward in heaven after death. Apostolic hope rested in the fact that their promised deliverer, a mortal, had conquered death by being restored from the grave. Moreover, he promised to return to the earth to reward the faithful with positions of rulership in his messianic kingdom. For that stupendous fact, please consult Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 3, verse 21, Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 4. In addition, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, and Matthew 19, verse 28, Luke 22, 
28 to 30, and also 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. And for an interesting text from other Jewish writings, Wisdom, the book of Wisdom, chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus' return was to re-establish in the future the greatness of Israel. The burning question the disciples posed to Jesus before he was taken to the right hand of the Father could not have been more fitting. We read there, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Jesus' reply was that it was not for them to know when this stupendous event would take place, that it was destined to happen, as all the prophets had foreseen, was confirmed by Jesus. The time factor remained uncertain. The same expectation is found exactly in Acts 3, verse 21. The hero known to these earliest Christians was no God-man. He was the finest son of Israel, the scion of the family of David, the most distinguished of the children of Judah, yet uniquely the son of God from his conception. Luke 1 verse 35. He had taught in their midst, died, and risen again. His career inspired in them the same hope of resurrection. A drastic new portrait of the Saviour was to emerge in post-biblical times. The later so-called Jesus of the church councils, embraced by the 4th and 5th century believers, was a curious distortion of the real human Jesus of the Gospels. Despite protests to the contrary, the Jesus of the new official creed only appeared to be a man. His real so-called ego, it was claimed, was the eternal person of the triune Godhead. The Jesus of the councils seems to have swallowed up the real historical human messiah of the Christian records. I invite you to compare that idea with Martin Werner's observation that, quote, the dogma of Christ's deity turned Jesus into a Hellenistic redeemer god and thus was a myth propagated behind which the historical Jesus completely disappeared. That's from Dr. Martin Werner's Formation of Christian Dogma, an historical study of its problems, written in 1957. The humble carpenter from Nazareth would be a better guide to truth than the decisions of the council supervised by a Roman emperor who was ill-equipped to decide the far-reaching issue about Jesus' identity. He paid little attention to the fact that Jesus himself made no claim at all to be God. The councils failed to inform us that Jesus did nothing to usurp the authority of the one God of Israel and agreed with his fellow Jews 
that God was one person alone. John 5 verse 44, John 17 verse 3, and primarily Mark 12 verse 29. Once true mortality and humanity were stripped from the Messiah, historical reality fell under a cloud. The Oriental concept of reincarnation made its first inroad under the guise of the Incarnation with a capital I. Greek speculation and mythology entered the faith by the back door with devastating consequences. Canon Guji's comment bears repetition. When the Greek and Roman mind, instead of the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. That's in an essay, The Calling of the Jews, Collected Essays on Judaism and Christianity, written in 1939. The departure from biblical truth in the direction of paganism has its roots in the philosophical speculations of second-century church fathers. This observation by Canon Gouge merits further examination. Is the loss of the biblical doctrine of God to be traced ultimately to the infiltration of alien Greek philosophy? But what of doubting Thomas? When this former skeptic exclaimed to the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God, in John 20, verse 28, did he, in a single sentence, and before, as Trinitarians admit, before his companions had any idea of the deity of Jesus, did Thomas establish a theology that made Jesus part of a trinity and therefore very God of very God, along the lines of the Nicene or later Chalcedonian formulas? Did he declare Jesus to be part of a two-person Godhead? as others assert. In spite of Thomas' clear application of the term God to Jesus in John 20, verse 28, the well-known theologian Emil Brunner makes the following pointed observation. I quote, The history of Christian theology and of dogma teaches us to regard the dogma of the Trinity as the distinctive element in the Christian idea of God. On the other hand, we must honestly admit that the doctrine of the Trinity did not form part of the early Christian New Testament. It was never the intent of the original witnesses to Christ in the New Testament to set before us the intellectual problem, that of three divine persons, and then to tell us silently to worship this mystery of three in one. There's no trace of such an idea in the New Testament. This so-called mysterium logicum, the fact that God is three yet one, lies wholly outside the message of the Bible. It's a mystery which the church places before the faithful in her theology, but which has no connection with the message of Jesus and the apostles. 
No apostle would have dreamt of thinking that here are three divine persons whose mutual relations and paradoxical unity are beyond our understanding. The mystery, so-called, of the Trinity is a pseudo-mystery which sprang out of an aberration in logical thought from the lines laid down in the Bible, but not from the biblical doctrine itself, from Brunner's Christian doctrine of God. The meaning of words must be sought within the environment in which they were written. The Bible was not composed in the 20th century, nor did its writers know anything of the subsequent creeds and councils. Context is all important in determining an author's intent. Within the pages of John's Gospel, Jesus never referred to himself as God. The fact is that the New Testament applies the word God in its Greek form, atheos, to God the Father alone some 1,350 times. The words atheos, as to say the one God, used absolutely, are nowhere with certainty applied to Jesus. The word Thomas used to describe Jesus in John 20, 28 was indeed theos, but Jesus himself had recognized that the Old Testament called the judges gods with lowercase g when he referred in John 10 verse 34 to Psalms 82 verse 6 where I quote, has it not been written in your law I said you are gods with a lowercase g. Theos, here in the plural, thei, appeared in the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament as a title of men who represented the one true God. Jesus on no occasion referred to himself as God in the absolute sense. What precedent did Thomas have for calling Jesus, quote, my God? Without question, early Christians used the word God with a broader meaning than is customary today. God was a descriptive title applied to a range of authorities, including the Roman emperor. It was not limited to its absolute sense as a personal name for the supreme deity, as we use it today. It is from the early church that the biblical words come to us, and it is from that New Testament environment that we must discover their meaning. Martin Luther's idea that, quote, the scriptures begin very gently and lead us on to Christ as a man, then to one who is Lord over all creatures, after that to one who is God. Quotation from Martin Luther, cited by Klaus Runia in the book The Present-Day Christological Debate. That statement from Martin Luther finds little support in the New Testament. It reflects the pressure of having to square received tradition with the text of the Bible. The recorded teaching of Jesus is against any departure from the strict unipersonal monotheism of the Torah in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, affirming 
that creed of Israel, Jesus had proclaimed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's in Mark 12, verse 29. Jesus expressed his allegiance to Israel's most emphatic statement of belief. His words were hardly calculated to lead the disciples, as Luther said very gently, to believe in another who is God. Such a concept is most contradictory, read in its clarity, with words retaining their original meaning, Jesus' absolute confirmation of the cardinal tenet of Judaism should be seen as proof positive of his approval of the unitary monotheism of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Thomas, who could not believe a resurrection had taken place until he had hard verifiable evidence, finally understood the exalted position which Jesus assumed as the risen Messiah. The longed-for national greatness for Israel now looked to be a real possibility. The claim of Jesus to be the promised Messiah was now confirmed. Jesus finally became Thomas's Lord and the God, so to speak, of the coming age of the kingdom. Thomas was well acquainted with the Old Testament predictions about the kingdom. The promise to Israel was that, quote, a child will be born to us, a son shall be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Divine Hero, that is, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. This was a clear, unmistakable statement about a coming Messiah, but this so-called mighty God of Isaiah 9, 6 is defined by the leading Old Testament Hebrew lexicon as, quote, divine hero reflecting the divine majesty. That's the definition given by the Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament. The same authority records that the word God, El, used by Isaiah, is applied elsewhere in Scripture to, quote, men of might and rank, as well as to angels. See, for example, Exodus 15, 11, among the gods, lowercase g, Ezekiel 31, verse 11, a god, lowercase g, of the nations, Ezekiel 32, verse 21, mighty gods, lowercase g. Ezekiel 17, verse 13, gods, lowercase g, of the land. And Job 41, verse 25, gods, again with lowercase g, that's to say, mighty men. The word El here refers to someone other than the one God, as in Ezekiel 28, verse 2. As for the expression, Eternal Father, the title was understood by the Jews to mean, quote, the Father of the coming Messianic Age. The Greek, or Septuagint version, gives us the word for eternal 
In this case, it need not convey the idea of forever and ever, for all eternity, past and future, as we normally understand it. But it contains the concept, quote, related to the future age. Truly Jesus, the Lord Messiah, will be the parent of the coming age of the kingdom of God on earth until, quote, all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will be subjected to the one, that's to say God the Father, who subjected all things to him, Jesus, so that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. It was widely recognized by the Jewish community that a human political leader could be called father, and Isaiah states of a leader in Israel, I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 21. Thomas, unlike Judas, had come to recognize the one who was to be the, quote, God of the coming age, replacing Satan, the God of this present age. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Thomas had not suddenly arrived at a revolutionary new belief that Jesus was, quote, very God of very God. There was nothing in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' messiahship which predicted that an eternal, immortal being was to become a human person as the promised king of Israel. Nevertheless, the human king could on rare occasions be addressed as, quote, God, as in Psalm 45, verse 6, where he's also given the title Lord, lowercase lord, as in verse 11. Both Lord and God can be messianic titles, and appropriately used by John, who wrote his whole book to convince us to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's in John 20, verse 31. Reality struck home to the skeptic Thomas when he recognized that it was the resurrected Jesus through whom God was going to restore the fortunes of Israel. Thus Jesus became God to Thomas in a way parallel to the sense in which Moses had also enjoyed the status of God in the presence of Pharaoh. I quote, The Lord had said to Moses, Look, I make you God to Pharaoh. Exodus 7 verse 1. These titles of high honor bestowed on God's human instruments did not infringe upon the strict monotheism of the Old Testament, nor should they imply the overthrow of the Bible's first principle, God is one person, not two or three. Mark 12 verse 29. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament could also be called God as representing the one God of Israel. You'll find that in Genesis 16, verse 9, 10, 11, and 13. Yahweh's authority was transferred to him because God's name was in him. Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21. In the contemporary world, God did not always mean what it means to us today. 
An inscription dated 62 BC calls King Ptolemy XIII the Lord King God. Medieval Jews referred to David as our Lord David and our Lord Messiah based on Psalm 110 verse 1 and compare with that Luke 2 verse 11. A 19th century Trinitarian theologian has this to say about Thomas's address to Jesus. I quote, Thomas used the word God in the sense in which it's applied to kings and judges who are considered as representatives of deity and preeminently to the Messiah. That's from the book by C.G. Noel, cited by W.G. Eliot, Discourses on the Doctrine of Christianity, written in 1886. But what about the later Apostle Paul? Is there biblical evidence that this former strict Pharisee abandoned his Old Testament Jewish heritage and enlarged his concept of God to include a second and third person, thus building a foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity.